0: Are scientists in the biomedical field going to be able to solve the world's disease problems? In a word, no. The biomedical
1: model alone is not gonna solve disease problems. We have to look at some of these other 21st century, what some people would call Anthropocene forces of war, political collapse, climate change, and anti-science, urbanization, internal displacements. And that's going to require a very uncomfortable dialogue.
0: On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, an interview with Peter J. Hotez, a laboratory investigator who primarily researches what are called neglected tropical diseases and the treatments for those diseases. I'm Robert Frederick. Neglected tropical diseases are the most common afflictions of people living in extreme poverty. Diseases such as schistosomiasis, leishmaniasis, and Chagas disease. Worldwide, you find them wherever you find poor people. The World Bank estimates that 1 in 10 people worldwide live in extreme poverty, which means that they live on less than the equivalent of $1.90 a day. And it's highly likely that all 750 million of those people living in extreme poverty worldwide have at least one of those neglected tropical diseases. Peter J. Hotez was the founding editor-in-chief of the Public Library of Sciences Journal on Neglected Tropical Diseases. He's also co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development, as well as professor and dean at the Baylor College of Medicine. Recently, He has been regularly speaking about the coronavirus pandemic, including how to quantify it and ways to mitigate its spread. He's taken an active role, including television appearances and curating a social media presence. We spoke about speaking up for science, the anti-science movement, and something he's written about for years called vaccine science diplomacy. That refers to the joint development of vaccines by scientists living in affected countries, working alongside with their colleagues from around the world. I began our interview by asking to what extent that joint effort in vaccine science diplomacy helps to overcome the many challenges to vaccine development. Here's our interview.
1: This is a concept that was pioneered by Albert Sabin, who discovered the oral polio vaccines. Not many people realize it. But his oral polio strains were not actually made into the vaccine in the USA. It was done as a back channel collaboration with the Soviets at the height of the Cold War. Uh, Sabin brought his virus strains over to the USSR, and it was there that it was made into a vaccine right after in the years right after the Sputnik launch. So at some of the worst times in the in the in the US, USSR Cold War, two countries put aside their ideologies. Sabin's virus strains were made into a vaccine tested on more than 10 million Soviet school children. It was shown to be safe and effective, and ultimately that's what that led to licensure of the vaccine. So we've been looking at that model to say, well, uh, could we uh, do this with countries we don't always agree with ideologically? And I got a, a, a lifeline from President Obama, who uh, went to Cairo in 2009 and made this famous New Beginning speech of reaching out to the Muslim world and the arts and sciences. And he tapped me as U.S. science envoy uh, for the Middle East and North Africa. And I began this journey of how we're going to partner with our vaccines, which were still in early stage development. Could we partner with countries on the arabian peninsula you know in north africa for that purpose and now we're uh, working together to jointly develop vaccines so uh it and it does two purposes one it it allows vaccine development in instances where on our own as a small nonprofit working at in an academic medical center we couldn't do it on our own so by it it expands the life of the vaccine by partnering with these countries. And at the same time, it's a fantastic diplomatic tool that I think is way underused uh, uh, by the United States government. I think science diplomacy is a very powerful force that we haven't really even come close to fully tapping. Uh, The other component to your question is around some of these modern 21st century forces that are uh, driving down vaccination coverage rates you know up until a few years ago the vaccine scientists were sort of high-fiving themselves and being very self-congratulatory because we had made such great advances in in vaccinating the world's children nearing the eradication of polio and even bringing down measles rates and measles is one of the tough ones because it's so highly contagious but we were you know through the global alliance for vaccines and immunization supported by the Gates Foundation and donor countries We'd made great progress vaccinating the world's children. But now we are starting to see that unravel a bit. And they're happening because of 21st century, both social and physical determinants that that we didn't really think of before. And they're not necessarily intuitively obvious. Uh, War and political collapse, for instance, is interrupting health systems, driving down vaccine coverage. So we're seeing this play out in the Arabian Peninsula and Syria and Iraq and Yemen. We're seeing this play out in Venezuela and Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo where you have Ebola right now. It's not just Ebola, we also have more kids actually dying of measles than Ebola in Congo. Uh, cholera as well. So how we're going to overcome these 21st century forces is, is a huge issue. And now, of course, we have the, the latest 21st century forces problem of anti-science.
0: When the joint development of vaccine work isn't possible, the vaccine already exists, and so that way of building trust isn't available. How do you engender trust?
1: So, you know, what what we're, we're seeing this play out now in especially in North America, especially in the United States and and in Europe, where people are increasingly becoming distrustful of vaccines or uh, erroneously believing vaccines are unsafe or even cause uh, autism or or other uh, conditions. And this is happening uh, not by accident. It's happening because of a deliberate misinformation campaign being led by an anti-vaccine lobby that is now widespread as pervasive. We've got now more than 480 fake anti-vaccine misinformation websites out there so that if a parent tries to download healthcare information about vaccines, they'll get garbage more likely than not. Um, And this is all being amplified on Facebook. Uh, Amazon is now the biggest single promoter of fake anti-vaccine books. So if you put books in the search engine on the Amazon site, You'll get a scroll down menu at the left that has health and wellness. Then you click on that, it goes to vaccinations. You'll get uh, predominantly fake anti uh, vaccine books. So it's this media blitz that parents are, are, are seeing and there's not really a counter prevailing force providing accurate information about vaccines and explaining why it's critical that you vaccinate your child. And it's also amplified by the fact that we've got political action committees now in multiple states in the U.S. lobbying against vaccines. So uh, this has been brewing now for about two decades. It started in the late 1990s for reasons which we can talk about, but now it's blown up into its whole whole media empire and political machine, and uh, it's affecting public health. So measles has now come back to the United States 20 years after it's been eliminated. We've now got a generation of teenage girls and boys being denied their cancer prevention through the HPV vaccination. Uh, So we're condemning a generation of women to cervical cancer. Americans are not getting their flu vaccine, all to benefit this uh, fake anti-vaccine empire. Uh, The anti-vaccine empire is real, but it's all fake news.
0: Or viral deception, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So, what, in your view, were the forces that uh, prompted this anti-science movement? Well, it be the
1: modern anti-vax. I mean, throughout American history, there have been fits and starts of an anti-vaccine activities, but this modern anti-vaccine movement, you can actually trace by doing a National Library of Medicine search on vaccines and autism, and it really started in 1998 with the publication of a fake paper. By Andrew Wakefield and his colleagues claiming that the measles mumps rubella vaccine, especially the measles component, leads to uh, autism or what they then called pervasive developmental disorder. And ultimately, it took an investigative journalist of the Sunday Times of London, Brian Deere, who uncovered quite an elaborate fraud scheme. And that paper was retracted, but it wasn't retracted till 12 years later. So we went from 1998 to 2010 with this buzz around thinking that vaccines may cause autism. And now it's gained critical mass, uh, to use the physics analogy, it's, uh, or the nuclear energy an- an analogy. So all amplified on social media, on e-commerce sites. Uh, it's widespread uh, misinformation. And of course, we've got the political arm as well. And we don't really have another force that's kind of, kind of going against it at this point.
0: In terms of spreading limited resources, you mentioned not having any resources really uh, for this kind of work. Uh, an entomologist or a public health researcher might argue, let's go after the disease vectors to eradicate diseases. Uh, That's worked in the past, including in the United States, with malaria, yellow fever. Uh, Public health folks would consider improved sanitation a huge removal uh, effort for uh, these kinds of of, uh, neglected tropical diseases. And then you can avoid, in some sense, these 21st century human causes of challenge, uh, war, political collapse, anti-science, Um, So why also vaccines in addition to these other efforts with disease vectors? Or or is it that that's part of the reason why these tropical diseases are neglected?
1: Well, you know, I think we've somehow, we have to get around this idea that there's going to be a single intervention that's going to solve these disease problems. I mean, remember especially some of these parasitic and viral infections have evolved with humans over millions of years, right? And so the idea that you're just going to use a single approach to get rid of these diseases probably isn't going to happen. I mean, look at HIV-AIDS, right? Just because we have antiretroviral drugs doesn't mean that we don't use condoms or other prevention measures. Or similarly, just because we have condoms and other prevention measures, we don't... We still. Build new antiviral drugs, and now we're building a vaccine. Well, it's the same with neglected tropical diseases. Um, uh, for malaria, for instance, uh, just because we're trying to build an anti-malaria vaccine doesn't mean that we're going to stop using bed nets and anti-malarial drugs and and other uh, uh, prevention measures. And and this is something that's not easy to sell. Uh, we we've somehow gotten in this uh, false situation where we think there's, you only get a single shot on goal against a disease. Malaria, okay, we must use vector control. Well, no, we're going to need vector control, anti-malarial drugs, and vaccines. But, but this is going to require a change in thinking for how we use vaccines, because in the past, we've always thought of vaccines as, as a unidimensional approach to solving a problem, Right measles we're going to use a measles vaccine polio polio vaccine in the case of malaria or the other diseases we're studying such as schistosomiasis and chagas disease the vaccine is going to be used as a parallel technology It may you, just because we have a malaria vaccine doesn't mean you're going to stop using antimalarial drugs and bed nets but it's going to be used as a complementary technology and that's not That's not been an easy sell to the policymakers. We're so fixed on vaccines as only as a uh, one-stop shopping for everything that we... And and unfortunately, the level of protection of these vaccines is not such that we can do that. So it's not going to replace existing technologies. It's going to be used as complementary technologies. But now now we we have the additional problem now that this anti-science lobby, the anti-vaccine movement... They're not only working to discredit existing childhood vaccinations for measles and and whooping cough, et cetera, but also they're trying to actively block the introduction of new vaccines. So they really have gone after the HPV vaccine uh, in in a big way. And it's, it's not universal. So for instance, in Australia, they've announced they're going to eliminate cervical cancer in the continent of Australia by 2028 through expanded use of the HPV vaccine. In the US, we're going the opposite direction. We're only getting 10, 20, 30% of teenagers getting the vaccine. So we're condemning women to cervical cancer and and, and other cancers. So this is gonna be a new battlefront in the introduction of new vaccines, the anti-vaccine lobby targeting these interventions. It's it's hard problems. Well, well, you know, one of the things that I like to say is this is also our fault as scientists, right? That we're so inward-looking, we're so focused on our grants and our papers and and writing and speaking for each other, that we've lost our ability to, uh, or even interest in engaging the public. We're going to have to figure out how to shape a generation, new generation of scientists that want to be out there, that want to be recognizable, that want uh, to be able to explain science to to audiences and and I'm starting to see among young people who have this amazing commitment to public service they want to do it we just don't have it in the dna of our profession right now we don't teach science communication public engagement in phd training and postdoctoral training uh, and we have to figure out how to how to fix that, because otherwise anti science movements will continue their ascendancy.
0: Are there changes that you have seen and are encouraged by in your field, or are there still changes that you'd like to see?
1: well um, I'm a little worried overall that the, the of the burnout in the donor and funding community. And we've gotten into this phony idea, that we talked about it before, that for each disease you only get a single intervention. And that's a big mistake uh, because nobody would ever say for diabetes or cancer or heart disease you get one single intervention, and then we're gonna stop research and development and all other interventions. That seems to be happening in our, in our field. And uh, I've been trying to speak out against that. We're going to need multiple, mo- these are complex, Diseases caused by complex eukaryotic organisms, we're going to need multidimensional approaches to them. So I'm I'm trying to, to fight that. But also making people realize that the biomedical model alone is not going to solve disease problems. We have to look at some of these other 21st century, what some people would call Anthropocene forces of war, political collapse, climate change and anti-science, urbanization, internal displacements. And that's going to require a very uncomfortable dialogue. So it means virologists are going to have to talk to economists and political scientists and climate change experts and we don't have that mechanism in place in universities and you know as you know being in a university for many years they're very siloed right i mean you stay in your lane and you write and speak for each other and you publish papers in the major journal in your field and that's how you get promoted and yet it's not going to solve modern 21st century problems
0: peter hotes thank you very much
1: thanks so much for having me
0: that was Peter J. Hotez, co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development and professor and dean at the Baylor College of Medicine. In the September-October 2020 issue of American Scientist magazine, you can read a different excerpt of our interview. It's in the article titled, First Person, Peter J. Hotez. You'll also find it online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us.